previously on Healed. The first witness called in the people of the state of New York versus Charles Jones is Marla Maples Trump. It was a very emotional time. I just kept asking, why did you do this? Why did you do this? I think Marosco was trying to shake her up, trying to get her to be not sympathetic. She's the victim of the crime. He's making her hold her panties in the air. Did you stand up and hold them as one of the jury? No, sir, I don't want to touch them. So one of the things we had to do is prove that the replacement value of the shoes was over $1,000. And that was important because if we were unable to prove that, it would be only a misdemeanor and not a felony. The battle of the experts. The prosecution brought in Richard Jacobson, who was the head of the Foot Fashion Association. He testifies that the collection is now basically worthless and that there is no normal market for this kind of distressed merchandise. The defense called tag sale entrepreneur and used shoe expert Gloria DePrado. They roll the shoes up to her and one by one she takes the shoes out, she puts it under her magnifying glass and she goes, 25 cents, throws it on the side, 50 <laughs> cents, a dollar. We've come to the testimony of none other than Tom Fitzsimmons. If the jury believed him, then certainly Chuck would have been acquitted. So you got to shred him. I got to go after him, right? So you're basically going to say that you're a drunk and you're a liar, so nobody should believe you. I mean, that was my plan. It, it went a little sideways. Andreas loses his shit, throws the jury out, throws Fitzsimmons off the stand, and comes off the bench and stands in the well of the courtroom. He's threatening to declare a mistrial. I'm your host, Trisha LaFarge, and this is Healed, the curious case of Marla Trump's shoes. So just to recap, yep. you found semen in the shoes. Uh-huh. You won your pretrial hearing, yes, which meant that all of the evidence recovered from Chuck's office would be admissible at trial. You offered him an ACD Yet again. Trying to get rid of the case, yes. He refused mm -hmm. yet again. Yes, he did. The trial began. Marla testified. Mm -hmm. Gianetta testified. Yep. Higgins testified. Lynch, Calamari, and Pezzo testified. A lot of witnesses. You had your shoe guy testify. Mm -hmm. The prosecution rested. Yes. Then... The defense started its case. Gloria Magnifying Glass DePrado testified. Yes, she did. The defense called Tom Fitzsimmons. <laughs> you two got into it over who was a bigger alcoholic, and the judge threatened to call a mistrial. The judge threatening to call a mistrial is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Usually, a mistrial is declared in a situation where the trial has been rendered invalid because of an error in the proceedings like here, or the trial has been deemed inconclusive after the jury has deliberated, meaning they've been in the jury room for some time and they cannot reach a unanimous verdict in jurisdictions that require a unanimous verdict, which is commonly referred to as a hung jury, which is not the situation we have here. But it is supposed to be reserved for errors that would cause prejudice and that can't be rectified with an instruction to the jury. And that to me, is just not the case here, especially because this was at this point an almost three-week case about shoes. And it's reported by the Daily News that at this point, February 10th, 1994, that it has cost taxpayers over $62,000 in salaries alone for the judge, other court personnel, the prosecutors, police officers, and the jurors since its start at the end of January. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a fucking mess at this point, right? I mean, we were getting a lot of press about how much this was costing and, you know, why are they prosecuting this case? And this this should have went, went away a long time ago. It's funny because this is the same press that actually, you know, made the thing go and go and yeah. go and go and loved every every headline. Second of it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was ridiculous. But at this point, the, the worst thing that could have happened was if the judge had granted a mistrial. The cost of a trial is something that judges absolutely take into account when determining whether a mistrial is justified. I have been in court when defense attorneys have said, Your Honor, I'd, you know, I'd like to to move for a mistrial. And judges have said, I'm sorry, this has been a six-week trial. I will instruct the jury to disregard the comments, but I am not going to declare a mistrial, you know, because they are aware of taxpayers' money. Unlike Supreme Court justices, most judges do not have lifelong appointments. They are up for election and they do take into consideration how much cases cost. So, my opinion is yes. Is this wild? Is this amazing? You two going at it like this from the bench, calling each other drunks? Yes, it is fantastic drama. But a mistrial here would have been pretty excessive. How do you feel? Andrus responded in the moment, just like I responded in the moment, and probably the way Fitzsimmons responded in the moment, right? I had, I was asking Fitzsimmons <laughs> sure. if he you know spends his days drinking and you know basically doing nothing other than going to, from bar to bar to bar. He came at me and said that I don't drink as much as you. I had the stupid question to ask, you know, you've drank with me, and he said no, but you have quite a reputation. I think no one expected that to happen, right? right. And I look, I have a piece of this. Fitzsimmons has a piece of this, and I think then Andrews has a piece of this, right. right? He could have responded in a number of different ways, Andrews. He chose to be very upset that he had basically lost control of his courtroom That's at that point. True. And, you know, what he did was he told the jury to go out, and then the jury left, and he was very angry. I remember him being, like, beat red, and he came <laughs> down off the off the bench, and he stood in the well of the courtroom, and he was very angry, and he said that he was considering— Why you know, did he come off the bench? That's another fun piece. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he just—you know, look, the press is there. It's a very dramatic moment, right? Yeah. And so he, you know, he was one who understood the drama, but I think he was legitimately pissed that 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 had happened. And I think he was looking to protect me too. I think that, you know, he saw it as an attack on me. He thought that Morosco had put him up to it. Okay. Um, and so he was yelling at Morosco. At that point, Morosco and Andreas had, you know, some had beef. A, they had some beef. I had some beef with Morosco. I mean, Andreas decided in the moment to jump down off the bench and, and basically give Morosco a talking to and give Fitzsimmons a talking to. And I I sat down, I uh, I licked I, my listen, wounds. Listen, I'm no fan of Morosco, but this is Morosco's fault that you, that you asked him, that you went after him. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah. You're doing your job, but. I think that Andreas thought that Morosco was involved in a setup with Chuck and with Fitzsimmons to try to embarrass me in front of the jury. I think that that's probably what Andrews thought. Whether or not that's true, I mean, who knows? I did not want a mistrial, right? I mean, that that was the, you asked me what my thought was when he did that. My right. first thought was like, this is confusing. Because if you're looking to help me or looking to protect me, the worst thing that can happen to me at this point is a mistrial. Jerry went home. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I went home. Uh, you know, it's not something that I went and told my bosses about, right? Right. Okay. So what happened the next day? There was some press in the case, right? I mean, right. It, it was it wasn't drunk DA, thank God. There were talks about the explosive nature of the cross examination of right. Tom Fitzsimmons and the fact that Tom Fitzsimmons had alleged that he and I were both on the same plane when it came to drinking. <laughs> um, I wasn't happy about it. I mean, look this this case had gone on for way too long, right? And and, and I mean, at every turn there was a lot of like just bad things happening. I wanted to get out of it at this point, but I was in it. We're going to finish it. We're right. going to do that. And, and then I get a call from my father. 
Okay. And the he, Brooklyn DA. Right. The elected Brooklyn DA. He got elected in the 1989. The late, great Charles Joe Hines. Yes. And uh, we had a quick discussion in which uh, his secretary called and I picked up the phone. And many, many times I would have this interaction, which his secretary, Catherine, would say, hold for your father. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I held for my father. And he got on the phone and he was like, just read the papers. Couldn't have been prouder. <laughs> And hung up the phone. Couldn't be prouder or something like that. My dad's a wise ass. I knew he was going to be a wise ass. I knew that, that something like that was coming. Was the couldn't be prouder dripping with sarcasm or did he mean he couldn't be prouder? No, it was sarcastic. I oh. mean, look, I mean, <laughs> you know, my father was in the paper almost every day when he was Brooklyn DA. Right. He was, you know, a prominent official. This is the <laughs> first time that I'm ever in the newspapers, really. And it's like about whether or not I drink as much as some, you know, crazy witness. I mean, it wasn't Okay, great. so when you went back into court, God bless him. Your dad. Um, when you went back into the court, so did the judge just tell the jury to strike that portion of the testimony and that they were instructed to disregard it? Did he strike all of Fitzsimmons' testimony? What happened? Yeah, no, I mean, we went into court. The judge gave you know what's called a curative instruction. He explained to the jury, look, what happened yesterday at the end of the day was um, not something that should have should have happened. He asked them to disregard that part of it. He said that the prosecutor's credibility is not an issue here. Um, he said some nice things about me, as I remember it. Uh, and then in, in a very strange situation, in, in a very strange case, uh, in a very strange time in my life, Tom Fitzsimmons, in front of the jury, asked the judge if he could address me. The judge <laughs> said yes, and Fitzsimmons apologized for, uh, for saying what he said the day before. Well, that's nice. Sure, we all were getting along at that point. Tom Fitzsimmons apologizes to you from the stand because he's still on cross-examination. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have much to do after that. Right, so you just say, no further questions, Your no, Honor? I, no, I, I went after him on his uh, testimony that Marla had always asked Chuck to do you know, certain things for him, that Marla had always asked Chuck to go into the apartment to get stuff for her. And, uh, you know, I was just able to show that, you know, he didn't really have time or place in mind. Mm -hmm. And it was the general statement. So I broke those statements down a little bit just to show the jury that he was, you know, I think fabricating most of it. No further questions, Your Honor. Fitzsimmons gets off the stand. And yep. now it's time for Chuck to testify. And how do you think he's feeling after all of this? After Marla had testified in the trial, and I thought was treated very poorly by Morasco. We were in a knife fight, right? And so one of the other things I used to do during the trial was I would make certain comments to Chuck um, when we weren't in session. And, you know, it was my hope that I could get him to testify. Right. Because it was my view that if he did testify, I'd be able to ask him certain questions that would show that this fabricated story about him having the ability to go into Marla's apartment, having the permission to do that, having the permission to take her stuff, was all bullshit, right? So my view of that was, you know, every time I got a chance to say something to him, like, Chuck, you going to testify? Chuck, you going to get up there? Right. I, like, I really want you to get up and testify. And, you know, Morasco would say, stop talking to my client. We'd, you know, we'd, you know, have at it a little I bit. I think a lot of listeners don't 
realize most defendants do not testify on their own behalf at trial. And most defense attorneys do everything they can to get their clients not testify because, you know, I'll defend, I want to get up there and tell my side of the story. And it's like, no, sit your ass in the chair. But you were trying to kind of egg him on to get him up there. But come on, Chuck Jones wasn't going to fucking testify. He's been running his mouth since he was in jail, calling reporters since the day he got arrested. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we knew that he wanted to tell his story. Um, I, I just wanted to make sure that he was going to tell his story. Right. And yes, I think that most defendants don't testify at the criminal trials. This is not like any other criminal trial I was right. ever involved in. So I was not shocked when Andreas asked Morosco, do you have any further witnesses after Fitzsimmons? And he said, yes, we call Chuck Jones. The moment we've all been waiting for, the shoe bandit takes the stand. Can you tell us, sir, how you first met Marla I was introduced to her in 1986 at the Durrell Inn. Uh, it's a hotel by Tom Fitzsimmons, who was living with her at the time. They were engaged. How was she introduced to you? As an actress, model. And would you tell us how? Had you struck up an acquaintanceship and a relationship with her? What happened was Tom, he had several uh, female friends from, from time to time, and uh, Marla was an actress. He usually asked me to try to help them out. Okay, so in that clip, we have Chuck talking about how Fitzsimmons used to bring all the ladies over to him to see if Chuck could get something popping off in their career. It was interesting because this is the first time we're really actually getting into the mind of Chuck Jones. And in his mind, Fitzsimmons... I've been in the mind of Chuck Jones for the past six weeks. I don't know. Fitzsimmons is the guy who, you know... He knows the ladies, and he's out there talking to models and actresses. Hey, and then girl, he's hey. Bro- yeah, and he's bringing them over to Chuck because Chuck is the guy who can make shit happen. I mean, look, all of this is bullshit, right? Chuck couldn't get anything happening, and Fitzsimmons couldn't get a bit part on a fucking TV show. So whatever. They were running some kind of like situation. I don't think Chuck was ever into the women for, um, you know, for, you know, romantic or sexual anything other than their shoes (laughs) who knows but he told this story about how he was a power player within the industry and fitzsimmons would bring women to him to to see if he could help them and that's how marla and and chuck met here's morosco and he is asking chuck whether he's having violent fantasies when he took this boot were you having any violent fantasies about anyone no did there come a time that you recognized that you had an unusual affinity for shoes? Actually, it had been building up because I've had this problem for a long time. Can you tell us for about how long? Uh, probably, let's see, 68, probably to over 20 years. Did there come a time, you say it was building up, did there come a time that I began to realize that it was a problem? Yes, it started affecting me, uh, mostly during my relationship with uh, Marla Maples. And uh, she was someone who uh, I considered a friend, and uh, it just uh, involved her on a level that I couldn't deal with it after a while. And uh, I did try to seek some help on it. I even actually spoke to her, tried to speak to her once about it. You're thinking, great, this is amazing. He's making our case for us. What were yeah, you I mean, I, thought, I was a kid in the candy store. I was right. like, I can't believe that this is the direct examination. He's admitting that he has a fascination with the shoes. Right. He's admitting that it, it, it got worse during Marla. He's admitted that he's taken the boots and he's admitted that he's cut them up and done some you know, fucked up shit with them. I thought this was my this was my, my best day ever. I mean, after the day before when like Fitzsimmons sm- smacked me around, I was like, 
All right, cool. Like we're we're in good. We're good now. It's we're like, good. do I have to even cross this guy? I'm writing my closing statement. It's like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't have to be violent. He just had to take him. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Morasco did a great job of explaining to us that Mr. Jones doesn't understand his fascination with shoes, Marla Maple's shoes in particular, and you can feel badly about that. You can have sympathy for him about it. That's okay. We do too. But guess what? It has nothing to do with this case. Trisha, look, I, I know the kids nowadays do this thing called the floss when they get. Excited. Excited. I don't know if you've seen this dance, but like that's if I knew what the floss was at the time, I would have been doing that in the courtroom because I'm like everything I need him to say, he's saying. Right. And I'm like, this could not get any better. And then a bomb dropped. Okay. Morasco walks by my desk and he drops a piece of paper and it, and it was like a Xerox copy of like three post-it notes. And then he hands the notes to Chuck and I'm trying to read the notes and like, you know, my, I got a little bit of a dyslexia thing going. And I'm like trying to read it. As I start to hear Chuck say, these are notes given to me by Marlo, which show that she wanted me to go into her apartment to get her shoes or underwear or like all sorts of stuff. Each one of those notes were dated differently and had instructions from Marla to Chuck Please go into my apartment and get this. Please go into my apartment and get that. Please do this with that stuff. You know, give it to charity. Give it to the Salvation Army. These notes basically were exactly what Chuck needed to show that he had permission and authority to be inside her place, to take her stuff, and to leave with it. Which is the heart of your case. It's the only part of our case. It's not the heart. It's the, it's, it is the case, right? These notes were crafted in such a way that if believed, the whole case goes down the toilet. Well, damn. Damn! I'm reading it. I can't believe this is happening. Chuck is identifying the stuff in front of the jury and saying these things in front of the jury. So I object at that point. I was able to stop the questioning and ask for a sidebar. So we get up to the sidebar and... Andreas is like, I can't believe that all of a sudden you're trying to admit these notes that we heard nothing about from the beginning. Morosco said, Judge, what do you want me to do? My client was preparing last night for testimony, and in his paperwork, he found the notes, brought them into court this morning, showed them to me, and now I'm trying to lay a proper foundation so the jury can know that Marla had asked him to do these things. Mm-hmm. Andreas said, okay, Heinz, what do you think? And I'm like, Judge... <laughs> I don't know what to think. Obviously, I'm surprised that this is happening now. Yeah. I also think there's an authenticity problem right. because I don't know if these are actually written by Marla. And I'm going to need some time to, to determine that. Andreas said, how much time are you looking for? And I said, I don't know, Judge, a couple days. And he said, no, I'll give you one day. <laughs> you can have one day, 24 hours, to go and try to figure out what's going on with these notes. Prosecution was on the ropes at this point because if these notes are true, I need to come into court in 24 hours and dismiss the case, which, you know, talk about front page headline shit, right? right? You know, DA dismisses shoe case. I mean, I'm, I'm done. My career is over. And, and nothing I did wrong, right? I, so anyway, look, the press is all over me. Well, you know, what, what's going on? What are those notes? What are you going to do? And I got to ignore them. Roscoe's talking to the press. He's telling them what it's all about. <laughs> I get back to my office and, and we call Marla, right? Okay. We told her what happened. And she said, I don't remember ever writing notes to Chuck asking him to do these things because that sounds crazy. I would never do that. So we faxed. There was fax machines back in the day. I think we still got fax machines, right? So we faxed the notes over to Marla. And Marla gets them, she reads them, and she said, I don't remember ever writing these notes. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Pretty sure is not inspiring. I would have liked her to say, this is not mine and these are not my handwriting. She did say, this does look like my handwriting, but I'm pretty sure I didn't didn't write these notes. Well, at least she didn't say, oh, 
fuck, I did write those that one time. It was just that one time, I swear, Kevin. Yeah, I would have I just left the state, I think, if that happened. <laughs> so what I did was I talked to my boss. My boss said, look, if you're going to question the authenticity of handwriting, there's one guy who we rely on here, and his name is Gus Lesniak. Okay, so what'd you do? I called Gus Lesniak. What I was told about Gus Lesniak was he was the premier handwriting expert in the country. The feds used him. Okay. We used him in the state. I was given his number. I looked at the number. It obviously wasn't a 212 number or 718 number. He's obviously not in New York. Turns out he's in some bumfuck (laughs) town in Pennsylvania. Right. So I called him up and I explained to him the problem. And he said, sure, come on out. Come on out to the farm and we can uh, take a look. And I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to think to myself, who would call their lab a farm? But- (laughs) Whatever. <laughs> Higgins and Giannetta are with me. They're excited about this. And uh, they say, uh, you know, what do you need? And I said, I need you guys to come pick me up in the morning to take me here. And I gave them an address. And again, there is no Google Maps at the time. Right. right? There is no, you know, you can't just put it in your phone and see right. how far away it is. They, you know, made some telephone calls and they're like, you know, Kevin, this is like four and a half hours away. Oh, my God. I'm like, okay, great. Well, pick me up at you know seven or whatever in the morning. They picked me up from my apartment in Stuyvesant Town, and we began our trip to the middle, literally the middle of Pennsylvania. We get in the car, and they begin to drive. And, and of course, because the world can't get any worse, right? It's not 2020, but the world can't get any worse for me at this point in 1994. But it starts to snow. We're not talking like fluffy, beautiful, you know, Christmas twinkly light snow. We're talking ugly New York, heavy, wet snow on bald tires with Giannetta and Higgins in the front seat, goofing around, laughing about how my career's going down the tubes, laughing about the fact that, you know, boy, we probably should have asked Marla if she ever wrote notes, huh, boss? I mean, all of these ridiculous things as I'm trying to sit in the back, freezing my ass off because the heat ain't working, wondering if this car's going to go off the fucking road on my way to bumfuck Pennsylvania to meet some dude I never met before who's going to tell me basically in the room, yes, your career's over or not. At some point, I started laughing about it, too, because the whole thing was absurd. I mean, everyone's back in New York doing their stuff in the criminal justice system. and I'm in a freaking car with these two bozos going out to bumfuck Pennsylvania to meet a guy named Gus Lesniak. I mean, it was it was a strange four and a half hour drive because of the snow. It ends up being a six or seven hour drive, literally stopping for gas, doing all that stuff. It's snowing in Pennsylvania. And we get there around magic hours, they call it out here, but like five, six o'clock. And we we roll in and it literally is a farm. Like the dude uh, lives on a farm. (laughs) And so we we roll down the the road and we see this farmhouse and there's a barn connected to the farmhouse. And we go up to the door and knock on the door and there's Gus Lesniak. He comes to the door. He's like, hey, good to see you. This guy is the premier handwriting expert in the world. Right. He's living on a farm in Pennsylvania. When I later asked why is that, it's because if you're the best in your business in anything, you can live any way you exactly. want. Exactly. And that's where he lived. So he goes, go out in the barn and I'll be out in a second. And I'm like, the barn? So we, we walk from his front door around the side and there's a barn there. And I'm thinking, I'm going to walk in here and see cows. Like, what is happening? Giannetta pulls the barn door open, and instead of a farm barn, it's a CSI lab. Oh, my God. It's got big, giant TVs on the wall. He's got computer equipment. And again, this is before everyone had computer equipment. 
so we walk in there. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And then he comes out the side door and he's like, hey, guys, you know, give me the known handwriting samples and give me the notes. And so those are the two things, right? We had known samples, exemplars, yeah. and we also had the notes, copies of the notes. And we gave them both to Gus. And he said, all right, I'll be right back. He goes around the corner and starts clicking and clacking on his computer. And me, Jeanette, and Higgins are kind of looking around. And I'm like, guys, don't touch anything, please, because like I don't have a budget if you guys break anything. And they're like goofing around. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and after some time, Lesnia comes back. And I'm like, well, and he's like, have a seat. So we sit down. Uh-oh. And up on the uh, on the TV screen, all of a sudden, the, the notes appear, right? So the notes are on one side and the known handwriting samples of Marla on the other. And he's like, these are very good. I'm like, very good how? He's like, well, they're very good forgeries. Oh, I'm Jesus. Like, okay, good. Yeah, I'm sweating under my pits, Kevin Hines. Yeah, so I said, how did you know that? And he was like, well... Take a look at this. And he zooms in on individual letters, both on the known quantities and on the, um, on the notes. And what was interesting is the first thing you think is, oh, wow, these two, these two things look the same, right? Mm-hmm. But when you zoom in on individual letters, you're able to see that, for instance, the scripted F on the known quantity is different than the scripted F on the on comparison, the, comparison, on yeah. the notes. Mm-hmm. Did it with the S. I think he did it with a capital T. And he's like, look, this is how we know. You can forge notes, but when you forge something, unfortunately, if you're not perfect, if you're not really good at it, you're going to make these kind of mistakes. And well, he shows Chuck us. got good because he was so busy writing Chuck plus Marla all day well, long yeah, in his exactly. notebook. Forever. <laughs> I mean, we had stuff that Chuck wrote. I right. said, is this, is, can you tell me if Chuck did these forgeries? And he said something very interesting. He goes, you have to remember when someone is forging a document and when they're forging someone else's handwriting, they're disguising their own handwriting to make it look like someone else's. Right. And so that's why it's very difficult to say, you know, Chuck wrote the notes. Right. What I can say is that Marla did not write the notes. Right. And that's all I needed. I mean, I dropped a subpoena on him. I'm like, look, dude, I need you tomorrow in court. Judge Andrews' courtroom, part 63, uh, 10 a.m. See, I like the story even better if you said, get in the car, Gus, you're coming with us. We got a room for you at the plaza. Yeah, yeah, no, we're not going to kidnap our, our, <laughs> our handwriting expert. Um, but yeah, he was like, yes, I will be there. And uh, the next day he showed up and he had with him all of the equipment necessary to show the jurors what he showed us the night before. In addition, he had lookbooks, right? So he prepared these books, which he was able to give to each juror, in which he was able to show the comparison between the individual letters, the F, the S, the T. That's hot. And then he was able to show on a big screen in the courtroom when he zeroed in on those letters how the notes that Chuck was saying came from Marla were in fact not written by Marla Maples. And he gave us that testimony and uh, he was able to, um, I think, show the jury that these were forgeries. Get it, Gus. So after Lesniak testified, we took him out of order. The judge let us take him out of order. And then Chuck had to go back up on direct examination. And uh, Morosco started asking him again. He stepped away from the notes and started asking him more about the fascination and the fetish or having to do with the shoe stuff. Yep. And we have a clip about that. Great. What is it about shoes that holds your interest? I still can't answer that question. I just don't know. It's uh, an attraction, the wear on it, the imprints inside of it. I I don't know what the fascination is, but it's there. You mean the foot? The foot, yes. So Chuck starts talking about his fascination with the wear and the imprint of the foot on the sole. 
Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever heard this, right? We had done some research on foot fetishes and shoe fetishes, I think. But I mean, this is the first time I heard like, oh, okay. So I was learning too, right? Jury was learning. I was learning. Right. Like, oh, it wasn't any of that. It was the imprint on the shoe itself of the foot. I didn't know what that meant. But I mean, that's that's kind of what he said. That was definitely- Educational. Uh, yes. I Yeah. Well, we think that Morosco here is trying to get back to what we were talking about before, which was it wasn't about being violent or anything, let's say, sexual in nature when he was cutting up the shoes. The point of slicing the shoes was simply to get a better look at the imprint. In the article, Jones bears his soul over the love of shoes. As there goes another headline. There's another one of our last headlines. Morosco questions Jones about the many pairs of boots found in his office that had been slashed and asked Jones if he had cut them. Yes, I did, said Jones. Morosco, why? Jones, I was really interested in seeing the imprint of the foot inside, That was strictly the only reason. The article goes on to say that Chuck Jones's interest in shoes wasn't limited to Marla Maples, that he would go to secondhand stores and thrift shops and buy other women's shoes, and he didn't consider his penchant for pumps a fetish, just a mental aberration, that if anyone had a fetish, it was Marla, because all of her shoes were Charles Jordan. And that after he testified... He felt good about burying his soul. I mean, I was learning a lot during his direct (laughs) examination, right? One of the things I learned was that there's this imprint situation, right? And what it made me think about is like, okay, you know, picture this, right? He's sitting in his office, you know, purple carpet, the mirrored walls, and he's like got scissors, I guess, or maybe like a straight edge box cutter. And he's like, a box cutter will be better on a shoe. We got to remember this shit actually happened. He actually sat there and cut the shoe so he could look inside at the imprint of the foot. Says Chuck. These are not things we've made up. This is what he testified under oath. When you think about it, it's just... Today, I still don't understand it, but that's what he did. The other thing he did was his parting blow of his direct examination was to take a whack at Marla, right? I don't got a fetish. She got a fetish. How absurd and what a stupid thing to do. But this guy could not help himself from the beginning. So yeah. he took a whack at Marla and then Marasco sat down and look, I was amped, right? I was yeah. like, finally, after all of these months, finally, I'm going to be able to actually speak to Chuck Jones in a courtroom in front of a jury and ask him the questions that I want to ask him. It, I, I was psyched, right? Chuck Jones is on the stand and, uh, you know, I get to get up and begin to ask him questions, which I'm very excited to do. And look, I had not done a very good job with Tom Fitzsimmons. So in preparing for Chuck Jones, I did something different. And in the DA's office at the time, and I'm going to date myself again, there was something called VHS tapes. These were large plastic black tapes that you would put in a VHS machine, and then you could watch a movie on TV if you wanted, or if, if, if there were certain you know instructive videos that the DA's offices put together, you could watch that. And there was a instructive video called The Art of Cross-Examination that was on a VHS tape. So the night before my cross-examination to Chuck, I borrowed that VHS tape. I don't know what VHS stands for. And I put it in my VHS machine at home and watched it. And it was a 90-minute tape 
I don't remember who the uh, prosecutor was at the time, but he did a lecture on cross-examination. And I took notes and I, I prepared as hard as I could for the cross-examination of Chuck because I knew that I had missteps during the Fitzsimmons cross-examination and wanted to make sure that that did not happen again. Chuck got up to testify, and uh, I was able to start my cross-examination of him. And I decided to go after him for the forged notes first. And because God is occasionally good, we have clips from Kevin's cross-examination of Chuck. And is it your testimony now that these notes are not the linchpin of your defense, that Marlon Maples made things up on the stand? Uh, I, I hope my whole uh, defense doesn't depend on those two notes, no. And you know why you don't want your no, defense to No, know. because I think that uh, whatever I presented here is a fair assessment of the situation. Well, don't you know, Jones, that these two notes, people 24 and people 25, are forgeries? They're not forgeries. Don't you know that they're forgeries? No, I do not. All right, so like, yes, I sound very, very... People's 23, people's 24, people's 25 are forgeries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a great impression. Look, I was I was amped up, right? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to show yeah. the jury. They're not forgeries. Uh, Does he yeah. even have a pulse, this guy? Look, I mean, I, I had him I had him in a bad spot, right? I mean, he had to somehow come up with an idea why, why they weren't forgeries. But look... What I'm trying to do here was tack him down, right? Trying to put into his mouth, these are the things you thought when you first saw the notes. Like you were excited about it because you were going to be able to show that they were the linchpin to your defense. Then I could also show that, you know, we had proven in our opinion that they were forgeries. And I, if for those of you who can't hear what Chuck, without a pulse, is saying, I hope that that isn't what my defense is hanging on. Well, it seems like it is, because other than that, you're talking about the fact that you weren't violently ripping her shoes open, hon. Let's play uh, another clip from Kevin's massive cross-examination. When you saw this note, you must have said, here's a note that says I left the keys to parentheses 8A That's for right. you at Trump Park. That's right. You said to yourself, if this jury could see this note, they would know I'm all alive and I'm innocent and I had the shoes legal. All right. Objection, Your Honor. All right. And, and here I'm trying to show, look, Chuck, what did you think when you first saw these notes, if they were legitimate? Like trying to show to the jury that there is no way that the night before he was about to testify, they just happened to show up, right? It was way too much of a coincidence. So it was a sarcastic way of me trying to show the jury that there is no way that what he's saying happened, happened. Right. Because if Chuck Jones knew that these notes existed for a year and a half, I would have tried desperately to find them. And if he did find them on the eve of his testimony, he better figure out how to do a triple sautau pirouette into a double round off because this is the money, honey. Then the next thing I went after him was this whole idea that he was somehow given the keys by the concierge. You knew when you found this note that Marla had said she never left keys for you with the concierge, correct? I, she has left keys. No, no, no. My question for you is this. This was the other part of it, right? He had always said that the concierge had given him the keys, that the concierge, that Marla would give the concierge the keys and then the concierge would give him the keys. It's all bullshit, but I needed him to say that again because Marla had already said it wasn't true. So I wanted to trap him in that lie. So now I had him under oath telling the jury that the concierge had given me the keys and we were able to prove that that, in fact, never happened. This is excellent lawyering for whatever missteps you feel like you took with Tom Fitzsimmons, you you more than made up for it. You are putting words 
in Chuck Jones's mouth. You are telling the jury what you want them to believe, but that's 1,000% acceptable on cross-examination. Where it isn't acceptable on direct, it is proper cross-examination technique, and I think you did an, an excellent job, Kevin. You Jones. knew when you found this note that Marla had said do, that she do, never left the, the key. Ex- the Marla lied. That's my favorite point. You know how many times in, at home I'll go, the Marla lied, the Marla lied, just walking around my, my, my home? I don't no, if, you, if you're doing that, I feel very the sorry for you. The lied. Feel sorry for me, Kevin. You okay. should. I want to know how many people out there have videotapes of them back 30 years ago. The lied. Listen, I was a professional prosecutor. I did a damn good job. You did. Well done. So what else did you cross them on besides the notes? The videotape, right? The videotape okay. was very important in our view. And, you know, I had seen that videotape now at that point, probably a hundred times, right? Yeah. And what we did was, again, it was frame by frame. It was a stop action pinhole camera. When you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, I wish this was a better videotape. I, you know, I wish this was better lit. I wish it was in, in the closet. I wish it was in the bedroom. I right. wish he was licking and sniffing. It, none of it, right? But you got what you got, right? right. So what I did was I, I took it frame by frame and I tried to show the jury through Chuck, that what he was doing was absolute proof that he didn't have permission and authority. Right. right? So what I did was we turned the videotape on while Chuck was on the stand. The first thing you see is somebody enter through the door of the apartment and close the door behind them. I stopped it there. I said, Chuck, can you tell me who that is? And he said it was him. Okay. The jurors didn't know that at the time because you couldn't see that well, but now he's admitted that that's him. Okay. The next thing I did is I hit the videotape and it starts playing again. And I watch him turn around and lock the door. Okay. And I said, isn't it true, sir, that you're locking the door there? And he said, yes, it is. And then I said, what'd you do next? And he said, I don't remember. I said, great, play the videotape. We play it, and he stumps down and looks out the peephole. I stop it there. What are you doing there, Mr. Jones? I'm looking out the peephole. Great. Next thing I do is I run the tape, and now Chuck is walking towards the camera, and I stop it right before he disappears because we got a real good close-up of Chuck's face. Great. And, you know... He looks like Kevin Spacey or Dennis the Menace. He's got that forehead. You know, he's in a suit. And I stop it there and I said, fair to say that's you, Mr. Jones? He says, yes, that is me. You turn to the jury? I turn to the jury. I give him a little wink and a nod. No, I mean, that's (laughs) fucking TV. You just, I'm a professional. So then he disappears from the camera. And, you know, fast forward it because it's like 10 or 15 minutes of nothing going on. And then lo and behold, there's another person. The same person is now in the hallway and he's got a bag over his shoulder, a black garbage bag. Uh, I've said it before. He looked like a creepy Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And he's heading now down the hall towards the door. And before he gets to the door, I stop it. And I said, who's that? He said, that's me. Right. I said, what do you have over your shoulder? He said, a black garbage bag. I said, what's in the bag? He said, I don't remember. Okay. And you let him you let him lie there, right? That's fine. So then he goes to the door and he unlocks the door. I said, what are you doing there? He said, I'm unlocking the door. I said, what did you do next? He said, I don't remember. I then play the videotape and we see him then stump down again or, you know, look through the peephole. I stop it there and I said, what are you doing there? He said, I'm looking through the peephole. Ouch. I said, great. He then unlocks the door and he leaves and he disappears. Now, why did I ask those questions the way I asked them, right? What your job is at that point is to lock the defendant into a story. Our story to the jury was going to be, he wasn't acting like somebody who was allowed to be there, right? What normal person goes into an apartment he's allowed to be there and immediately turns around and locks it and then looks through the peephole? He's acting like a cat burglar, right? Before he leaves, he does the same thing. He looks through the peephole. Why is he doing that? Our argument 
in summation was going to be, he did that because he didn't want to get caught. He right. didn't want to get caught coming in. He didn't want to get caught going out. Right. So he checked to make sure by looking through that peephole. And I was able to take him frame by frame through that videotape to show that that's the way he acted. And not only is that the way he acted that the jury saw, but that he admitted to acting that way. There was no argument for him to make later. Right. So once I had locked him in on that, I was very confident that the jury would understand that he was acting like somebody who didn't have permission and authority to be there. Because again, I had to show that, you know, not only did he not get notes from Marla saying, go in there, right? But also that he was never really able to go in there and he wasn't allowed to be in there. So we did that. And then we moved on to the semen. This was probably one of the most bizarre rulings I'd ever had from a judge because we wanted to prove, as I told you guys before, we, we, had, we had semen in the shoes. It was determined to be semen. It was determined to be Chuck's semen because we had done a blood test. And what we wanted to show the jury was that, look, he was not just taking these shoes to borrow them and give them back. He was doing things to them, cutting them up, putting his semen in them. He was doing things that showed and proved that he wasn't going to just give them back to Marla. So what we wanted to do in this particular time was to show that the semen in the shoes was Chuck's. The defense had argued that that was prejudicial. And I understand that argument. Like, you know, look, if it comes out that, you know, he had done these to the shoes and it was definitely his semen, it's prejudicial. But all evidence is prejudicial. The the, the standard for relevance is it's m- more prejudicial than it is probative. So your argument is it's highly probative for an element of one of the crimes charged, correct? The judge saw that too and he decided to split the baby, right? So he decided in a Solomon-like way to uh, come up with this ruling, which was, I couldn't bring in the fact that there was semen in the shoes and that the semen was Chuck Jones on my direct case. What his ruling was pre-trial was, if Chuck testifies, then you may ask him if he had a sexual relationship with the shoes. If he admits to that, then I was stuck with that answer and I could not bring in the serology because he had admitted to it and any other evidence on top of that would just be um, prejudicial. If he denied it, right. then the judge was going to allow me to bring in the serologist to show that, in fact, there was semen in the shoes and that the semen was, in fact, Chuck's semen. And so probably one of the highlights of my, my legal career and, and maybe my life, I had the opportunity to cross-examine a defendant and I was able to ask the defendant, Chuck Jones, if, in fact, he had a sexual relationship with the shoes. Wow. Yeah. We don't have a clip of this, do we? No, we couldn't find it. God darn it. Well, you're an actor. Maybe we should act it out. You, you're, you're asking me to act it out? Let's do it. And, and I'm going to take your part too. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know. I just don't feel like it. Well, here's the deal. How about, over it. how about this? I'm going to let you play Chuck Jones. <laughs> okay. You twisted my arm. I'll do it. As the New York Daily News reported, under cross-examination, Assistant District Attorney Kevin J. Hines asked Jones, did you, sir, have a physical, psychological, sexual relationship with Marla Trump's shoes? It's deeper than that. It's psychological, sure. Well, was it physical? Was it sexual in nature? I mean, it's not a fetish at all. If anyone had a fetish, it's Marla. She only wore Charles Jordan's shoes. But Mr. Jones, there were sexual implications, were there not? Yes. Did you have a sexual, physical relationship with the shoes? Yes. It's an irresistible impulse. I don't understand it myself. And scene. 
Ed, that's the way it went. Even looking back on it now, I can't believe it. I honestly cannot believe it. But those were the things that went on at that trial. So what was the energy like, if you recall, in the room when you got him to admit that he had a physical, sexual relationship with the shoes? The jurors were shocked, right? I think they didn't understand what was going on, right? Because look, it's weird, right? I mean, it's like, what are we talking about here? Like, I knew we were talking about semen in the shoes, right? (laughs) The judge knew, defense knew, obviously Chuck knew, but we weren't able to say that. We could only say sexual relationship with the shoes. So part of me thought like, did they think he like, like had sex with the shoes? Like, look, a lot of things going on in my mind. Well, we don't actually know what happened in the shoe because he may have. There's no video of it. Right. Right. Because Calamari and Peso did not set up a camera in the purple carpeted office. The press went crazy because they knew, right? And and the jurors, you know, they're told not to read the newspapers and they, but I don't, yeah, but I don't, I don't know if they knew it was coming. I don't, I don't know. know it was coming? (laughs) Wow. Yes, about the energy in the room. Shock? Yeah. Awe? It was my ultimate moment as a criminal trial lawyer. But uh, the press loved it. The jurors were confused. I think Chuck was uh, disappointed. (laughs) Um, And I think at the end of the day, the reality was that I got my point across, which is what I wanted to do and I was happy with. So now it's time to sum up. Yeah, and, you know, the defense goes first. And so Morasco, you know, stands up. And, you know, his cl- his closing argument was this weird, like, conspiracy theory thing, right? In his mind, or at least the, the, the argument he's making to the jury, right. is that there's a conspiracy. And the conspiracy— Against Chuck Jones. Against Chuck Jones. It begins with Donald Trump. And the idea is that since Chuck Jones had possession of certain naked pictures and, and diaries, stuff that could embarrass Trump, that Trump decided— diabolically on the you know roof of you know Trump Tower that he was gonna you know somehow ruin Chuck Jones and and, and he decided here's the conspiracy I'm gonna control the New York City Police Department and the New York County DA's office and the press and I'm gonna show the world that Chuck Jones was this maniac who was stealing shoes and stealing underwear and like stealing stuff from Marla but they never really cared about the shoes correct and it was all about trying to discredit him, right? right? So in Morasco's summation, all he talked about in the beginning was this vast conspiracy. And look, it was, I let him go, right? Because like, <laughs> as we've talked about, like you, you don't interrupt the college. Run, Forrest. It was really, you know, entertaining because like none of it had been proven, right? I mean, Trump right. didn't testify, so I don't know what the hell he was talking about. But this is, this is the tech they took. I'm sure that Chuck told him that, right? He gives this great summation and he does a very good job. Problem is he's got no facts to back any of it up. Right. And the other thing that bothered me a little bit was that in this conspiracy, I'm some kind of pawn, right? Because right. I'm, I've am i been controlled by Donald Trump. And you're this like young Opie off the bus or something? Look, or? I was raised by a prosecutor, right? right. I, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I knew the fucking game. I wasn't going to let Trump manipulate me for what? Like there was no payoff there. There was nothing good for me in, at the end of the day. As I've said, I didn't want the damn case, but here we were. And now I was being told that I was involved in this massive conspiracy. And being manipulated. Being manipulated, which is something I don't like to manipulate. I don't like to be manipulated. I don't like other people to manipulate other people. Right. Right. Fine. Again, let the guy talk. He can't back it up. You know, our summation will clean it all up. Right. But then he did something that was 
I thought over the line, which he held up the notes, right? Okay. And he said that these notes prove that Chuck had permission to be there. These notes prove that Chuck had permission to take the shoes. And then he said, if the prosecution thought they were forgeries, they would have called Marla back to the stand and they would have had Marla say that I did not write those notes. I objected because what actually happened was we had asked Andreas to recall Marla to say those notes were not written by me. Right. But Andrea said, you already proved it with Lesniak. You don't need to put her back on the stand. I'm not letting you do it. Right. So for the defense then to stand up and say they knew that they were in forgeries because they would have called Mala when Morosco knew that I was barred from doing that right. was over the line. So I objected. Andreas, who knew all this too, right. lost his shit because he did not like that type of lawyering in his courtroom. And he, you know, he went a little bit, you know, a little bit nuts. And uh you know, here's where he, he went after Morosco and he told Morosco, you know, that's not true. Morosco said, no, I didn't know that was not true. They now, got- why, now, why would Morosco say he didn't know? I think it was the heat of the moment type thing, right? I mean, you know, lawyers sometimes get in the middle of heat in the moment. They're in front of the jury. This argument ensues. But if he's prepared to say in front of the jury, he thinks he's going to say it without anybody saying anything I think he probably it? knew he'd get an objection. I don't think he knew that Andreas was going to lose his mind the way he did. And I think that they got into this argument right. in front of the jury. And, like, Andreas basically threatened to throw him in jail, which was, I mean, that was, you know, that was some serious shit going on. Can we just tell the listeners, first of all, it is so rare, again, regardless of what you see on television, for anyone, let alone a judge, but either party to interrupt during an opening or a closing statement. For the most part, no matter what you want to say during an opening or closing, you keep your mouth shut because it just makes you look so bad in front of the jury because you're going to get your chance. Mm -hmm. Prosecution is going to get their chance to stand up. But Kevin objects because this is egregious. And then the judge goes crazy. This is rare. It's, it's a strange case. It's a strange time in everyone's life. You know, my father told me the day I got sworn into the bar, he said, the one thing you have to be afraid of as a defense attorney is the clients themselves because they're going to want you to do things a lot of times. And, and, and you're going to want to do things for them because you're going to want to win. And to me, this is such a bad move on Morosco's part. He was concerned that the jury had thoughts in their head. Did this lawyer know that forgeries were put in in this case? Did Chuck Jones put him up to it? And I, I feel that this was Morosco and Andreas having a beef and, and Morosco's concern for his own reputation in the legal community and he went out on a limb here and held those papers up and said, these aren't forgeries. And if they were forgeries, they would have called Marla. And then Morosco says, I never heard Andreas say that there were no more witnesses. I never heard him say they couldn't call Marla. This is some, I mean, wow. Yeah, he would look. You he getting so much trouble with the Bar Association for this. Look, he went, he went on, out on a limb. It was a last-ditch effort. Look, there were a number of times during the trial where I think Morosco thought, you know, they had a win in sight, right? Chuck did not hold up well on the cross-examination, right. right? I will tell you that. And I know Morosco was present for that. And he got to see that, and he got to see the way the jurors reacted to that. So he's in summation, and he's going to go for it all. I don't fault him for that. Look, I was, I was a criminal defense attorney. I've done things as a criminal defense attorney that, you know— would be looked upon as, wow, that's really, you know, getting close to the line, maybe stepping over the line. You're fighting for your client's life at that point. It's summation. Go for it. I got no problem with that. What I did have a problem with is him lying to the jury, and I wasn't going to let him get away with that, and that's my job as a prosecutor, to make sure I step in and try to stop that. Andreas 
was very upset because he knew what the reality was and he decided that, you know, he was going to now get into some kind of weird screaming match with Morasco, which actually happened and was, you know, reported in the newspapers. After that argument, you know, he then finishes up and he says, look, the, the prosecution has not proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt. You should find him not guilty. And he sits down and then, you know, we get up very straightforward. Chuck did not have permission to be in her apartment. The videotape shows he's in the apartment. He admitted he was there. Chuck did not have permission to take the shoes. We know that we found the shoes in, in his office. The handguns are the handguns. They're in the office. It's all based in, in fact in stuff we've proven. And we showed the videotape again and said, look, this is someone who is acting in this videotape like he doesn't have permission to be there. Right. We went through all that again. And, uh, you know, when we were done with summations, we rested. So the summations are over mm -hmm. and the jury retires for deliberations. The judge charges them on the law, and then um, the jury, you know, gets the case. And in that uh, situation, the jury got the case, I think, right after lunch. Okay. We thought we proved our case beyond a reasonable doubt. There obviously wasn't any mass conspiracy. They didn't prove anything like that. So it was hard for me to believe that they were not going to come back in like 20 minutes, right, with a guilty verdict. That's honestly the way I felt. Right. And then 20 minutes came and passed, and then an hour. Even if there was a mass conspiracy, you know— so what? It doesn't go to the crimes charged, right? Right. So yeah. my view is go back in the jury room and say to yourselves, okay, did they prove these cases beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes. Eh, eh, here we are, verdict guilty. Okay. That's what I so thought was going to happen. 20 minutes goes by. 20 minutes, then an hour, then three hours, and next thing you know, it's six o'clock, and the judge decides, okay, we're going to let them go for the day and mm -hmm. come back tomorrow. Okay. And I got to tell you, like, from the beginning, from the first day I got involved, there was so many stupid twists and turns. I'm like, Really? Really? Press is laughing at me. My colleagues are laughing at me. Like, you're going to lose this case now? Because look, generally speaking, quick verdicts are a prosecution's verdict, right? Correct. Jury goes in, boom, 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 you're done. Maybe not 20 minutes, but it's usually an hour, two hours, whatever, on stupid little cases, right? This one, they're going overnight. Big case exception, Kev. I guess. I wasn't thinking that at the time, though, to be honest. I was thinking, You were thinking oh. maybe I'm going to lose this thing? Oh, I mean, what, what else are they doing? I mean, I I'm it's, thinking like it's, a hung jury, maybe. It's a three-week trial, and, and it's it's two felony counts and some, some guns. What I started to worry about there was hung jury, right? Which is the worst possible outcome, right? One <laughs> thing is like, all right, if you lose the shoe case, it's not great, right? right? I could probably slink away and be fine. But hung jury means I'd have to try it again. Right. And like that, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm talking about this thing 30 years later. It's giving me, honestly, I'm giving me nightmares now. Could you imagine if I had to retry it back then? But right. anyway. You wouldn't have made it. I probably wouldn't have made it. It just, I mean, they should have been back in 20 minutes, but they weren't. So we went overnight and we had to wait until the next day. And the next day we came in and, and again, you have to remember what do prosecutors and defense attorneys do during this period of time, right? Defense attorneys don't have offices in the building. I had an office in the building, right? So I would go down to the sixth floor. And what you do when you have a jury out- Try to is, work on another case, right? Nah, everybody knows you got a jury out. <laughs> Everyone's just like all over you like, oh, did you hear anything yet? Did you hear anything yet? Everyone who's a prosecutor knows what that feels like, right? It's that pit in your stomach, which is like, ugh, you know, this better, this better go the right way because, you know, you're judged on your convictions, right? Right. And this one, again, because the case was different, was very different. People come by, hey, did you get the shoecase verdict yet? You know, people like women were throwing shoes at me. Like, it was just this, like, I would come back from my office They're sometimes. They're throwing their own shoes at you? I would come back from my office sometimes, it'd be a fucking shoe on my desk. Ha, okay. ha, ha, very fucking funny. I get it. Did you look at the imprint? No, I didn't look at the Stop imprint. Stop lying. 
So the next day, came in, went back into the courtroom uh, just to, you know, say, judge, we're back. You know, you go back down your office and you hang out. And I remember, you know, having my feet up on the desk, looking at my wingtip shoes. Playing hangman, tic-tac-toe, you watching, and Giannetta. Watching my career go down the tubes. I'm waiting for a verdict. Every The, the city's waiting for a verdict, right? right. Everyone is The streets clamoring. are watching. Everyone's watching. And so finally, I think around noon, it was before lunch, uh, I get a call. And the clerk said, come on up, we got a verdict. So we walk in and, uh, you know, the press is there and, you know, the lucky loser there and there's some people from my office there and just people from around the courthouse because they're like, oh, right. there's a verdict in the shoe case. The shoe case. It's been and going on for a year and a couple years <laughs> now, right? 18 months. 18 yeah. months. And so now we roll in. I'm sitting at my desk and Chuck is- Did Marla show up? No, no, no. The victim no. never shows up to the right. verdict. And so we're there and the judge comes out and he tells everybody, look, I don't want to hear any- bullshit once this thing's announced right just no reactions let's just see what happens and at that point i was like whoa i mean i i think it's gonna be guilty but like maybe not now like maybe he's worried about my reaction um but anyway <laughs> the jury comes out you and the, take off your shoe and you throw it at him well here's the thing right the jury comes out and there were two women on the jury who had been crying and i'm like oh no like what what have I done to make these people cry? But that's actually, isn't that like a good sign if they were crying? Because that means that, you know, kind of you won, right? I I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what the hell it meant. I mean, I was I was thinking to myself, I want to cry. Like, <laughs> believe me, like, if anyone had- I want to cry if too. If anyone had reason to cry in that courtroom, it was me. But Oh, God. This is, you know what this is? Yeah, you know what this is? Yeah, the smallest what is violin. Oh, you finally know something. It's the smallest violin in the world playing My Heart Bleeds For You, by right, the way. I'm rubbing right. my fingers together. Chuck's potentially going to jail, but Kevin wants to cry, ladies and gentlemen. Who's 30 years old. I mean, I had, <laughs> I had hopes and dreams. <laughs> so we, uh, the jury comes out, and uh, this is what happened. Has the jury agreed upon a verdict? Yes, yes we have. Will the defendant please rise? I'll say you with the count one, charging the defendant Charles Jones with the crime of burglary in the second degree. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. I'll say you to his count two, charging the defendant Charles Jones with criminal possession of stolen property in the fourth degree. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. I'll say you with the count three, charging the defendant Charles Jones with the crime of criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Thank you. You may be seated. He just, you know, shook his head and, and then sat down and uh, he was convicted on all charges. Guilty of felony burglary. He's guilty of felony criminal possession of stolen property and he is guilty of weapons possession. Yes. Which meant he faced a mandatory minimum of 18 months yes. and he could get up to 15 years in prison, but a mandatory minimum of 18 months. Yes. And that means prison because you can only do 12 months and under in jail. Yes, but this was no surprise to Chuck Jones. Every time we made him an offer of an ACD, he knew and was told by the judge, by the prosecution, by his lawyers, if you lose at trial, you're going to stay prison. So the, the prosecution made a motion to have Chuck remanded to jail yes. while he was awaiting his actual sentencing and the defense opposed that motion, and Andreas granted the defense's motion for him to stay out on his bail pending sentencing. So Chuck did leave the courtroom for, yes, for the time yes. being. He was convicted. We moved to have him remanded because it's a standard move back in the day of what you did. Um, the Everybody judge, does. Yeah. Still. The, okay. The judge ruled that you know he you know he could stay out pending sentencing, mm -hmm. and uh, Chuck went home. And then I got a call from Donald Trump. 
So Donald Trump finally calls you? The verdict was delivered, um, went back to my office, got a bunch of congratulations from my, you know, colleagues and, hey, and bosses. You're a hero. I closed the door, took a deep breath. I was happy it was over. I then get a call, picked up the phone, and it was, it was Donald Trump. I said, hello. And he said, uh, I want to uh, congratulate you. And I thought it was somebody goofing with me first because, like, again, I had not spoken to him, right? Mm -hmm. I thought maybe it was somebody goofing with him. But, you know, I was, like, listening. And he said, uh, I want you to meet Marla and I for dinner tonight to congratulate you on your fine work in this case. And I was like, okay. And he was like, meet us at Trump Tower, right? How do you turn that down at that point? You have to remember, this guy was, you know, a larger-than-life figure like uh, i'm i know that he's a very very volatile guy now i know many many people hate him many people polarizing love him very figure. polarizing at the time he wasn't right he was just a, a dude clown. a clown you know somebody who generated a lot of press and who had definitely you know imprinted himself on i want to talk about imprints imprinted himself <laughs> yes. on new york city very right? nice he was also somebody who was you know prominent in the community so you know he invited me to dinner I went, went to dinner. Yeah. First, I went out for a couple of drinks with some friends first, but I ended up showing up there at Trump Tower, whatever restaurant it was. And we sat down and uh, I got to tell you, Trish, it was fucking surreal. I mean, right. the dude is exactly what you think the dude is, right? He is, even back then, his hair was weird. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, and she's gorgeous, right? I mean, right. she's beautiful and, and she was very, very nice. And he was very, very happy that the outcome had come that way. I would say when I first came to the table, he shook my hand. He thanked me. Were his hands huge? Uh, he, he thanked me. He said, um, I had somebody in the courtroom the whole time. They said, you did an incredible job. Oh, good. I said, thank you. We sat down. We began to order. He then said, I want you to come work for me. I, I told him, look, that's very nice of you, um, but I just think about it. Think about it. I guess I was flattered, but still, right. like, I'm not going, uh, that's not happening, right? right? I mean, my career trajectory was definitely plateaued. Like, I just, did, did you, maybe you haven't heard, I just won the shoecase. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so, like, I'm moving on up. My hon. phone's ringing off the hook. Yeah. And so, so I said, you know. My page I, is I going off, 911. He, he said, I don't want you to think, of, I don't want you to tell me now, just think about it. Right. And I was like, okay, fine. And then we, we started having dinner. And what was remarkable, and they've said this about this dude, his attention span is not really long, right? Really? So like that, after that, this like that, 10 that minutes shocked. of telling me, I'm my the, face. telling me I'm the best lawyer in New York City, he basically ignored me for the next hour and a half while we ate dinner. He talked to Marla. He talked to Richard. People came over to his table. He had to get up and make some phone calls. He was wheeling and dealing and right. doing whatever Donald Trump was. I ate my, you know, steak Trying or whatever. Trying to get out of bankruptcy I, at the time. Who but. knows? I ate whatever they, you know, I ordered. I ate all the food, had a couple of cocktails. And then I said, thank you and, and, uh, and disappeared into the night. Nights. Yes. That was the dinner. And uh, people have asked me a lot of times, like, you met him. What was he like? I mean, I... I he was very nice to me for 10 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, it was as if I did not exist. Mm -hmm. Okay, that tracks. So then in April, uh, we came back for sentencing. April 7th of 1994, yeah. Chuck gets sentenced, right? Okay. And Andreas could have sentenced him to 15 years. Right. And uh, he allowed Chuck to make a statement first. Yes, we have it. I regret uh, all the pain and, and, and anguish that uh, my two daughters and my wife have suffered as a result of all this. Yeah, this is always the sad part, right? Yeah. I mean, here's a guy who's got kids, who's got a wife. You know, he's about to be sentenced to, 
to prison. Yeah. And he's now saying that he's sorry that he, you know, that he brought this upon, you know, his family, the pain that he brought upon his family. I, right. I mean, that's, you feel horrible about yeah. it, Yeah, right? and even if you don't feel bad for him, you feel bad for them. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, Andreas heard that and took it all in, and then he decided on his sentence, and, you know, he had things to say, too. My intention would be normally to sentence you to a time in excess of the minimum, because you had all your chances to resolve it. But I'm satisfied that you have a compulsion here that couldn't really allow you to resolve the matter before this, and that you went forward for reasons that you really couldn't control. My hope in the future is that you get that in hand, and that parole monitors you, you get yourself together, and you stay away from this person. If she doesn't want to have any dealings with you, that is her choice. I'm going to sentence you to the minimum, one and a half to four and a half on the burglary charge, one to three on the possession of stolen property, concurrent, a year on the gun case. By operational law, that would be concurrent. That's the sentence of the court. Andrews put into words exactly what I thought and exactly what a lot of the city thought, I think, at the time, which was like, why the hell did we have to go through this whole thing? Why in God's name are we here today? And the reality is we were there that day because of one person, and that was Chuck Chuck Jones. Jones. Should he have gone to jail? It's what the state law was. I mean, he had to go to jail. Right. Was justice served? I don't know, Trish. We sat here a couple of days. You tell me couple days. I feel like I set out on this whole thing to try to figure out what was going on with Chuck Jones. Why would he do this? Mm-hmm. I think it boils down to he was obsessed with Marla Maples. Was he mistreated by the Trumps? You know, do you do people deserve to be paid when they offer value into your life, when they come to your rescue? There's articles where Chuck talks about his phone bill went from $80 to $1,000 a month. He had he had paparazzi trying to sneak into his office. He lost clients because of the work he did for Marla that he was never paid for. But ultimately, he was offered ACD after ACD, adjournment in contemplation of dismissal. He refused to accept responsibility. But Chuck, when you enter the criminal justice system, you make a choice to roll the dice. There's always arguments on both sides, but Chuck made a choice. He made a choice. All you guys asked him to do was stay away from Marla Maples to get some help and to not get in trouble again. Now the not get in trouble again, that was a slam dunk because he had gone 52 years of his life without getting in trouble. Seems like what the problem was, was stay away from Marla Maples. And in this sentencing instructions, all Andreas wanted him to do was serve his time and stay away from Marla. I'm hoping that that's what he did. Yeah, um, but uh, you know Chuck. And as far as I I don't care what the verdict was, I, I'm still not, not, not guilty, guilty of any of that stuff. We want to thank all the listeners for coming on this ride with us, with Chuck, with Donald, and with Marla Trump and her shoes. Healed is a Just Kill production produced by Tandis Karami, Luke Roneman, and Tyler Patrick Jones. It's written by Kevin J. Hines and myself, Trisha LaFoch. The Healed theme music was written by Chad Crouch. 
Additional shout out to Mike Schaffernack, our editing wizard, our sound engineer, Kyle Raps, and to Max Alcabez, owner of Pink Cloud Studios in Los Angeles, where we record these shoescapades. Follow us on our Instagram at healed.podcast or check us out on our website, healedpodcast.com. 